Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the honor of speaking with Craig M. Trester. Craig is a citizen scientist who utilizes biomimicry through applied mycology to develop regenerative solutions for many of the environmental challenges that impact New York City. In 2018, he created myc.nyc, an applied mycology educational resource to teach the benefits that fungi provide to our health, environment, and society. In 2019, he engaged grade school, high school, college, and adult students through several original mycology, soil, molecular biology educational programs that he developed, taught, and facilitated. Craig has recently focused on how those qualitatively regenerative principles of permaculture might combine with the quantitatively powerful tools of molecular biology to enhance our understanding of the natural microbial world. Through research of fungi and soil biology, diligent observation of surroundings, and an intentional application of microorganisms, Craig believes novel approaches for bioremediation and urban agriculture can be made a reality. By unlocking some of the most promising potentials of fungi and bringing citizen science into the classrooms of New York City, I think Craig is helping to forge a future where humans, mushrooms, and microorganisms all co-create a better world in beautiful harmony. Craig, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. I honestly was not aware of you, and I'm so glad we got connected because the work you're doing is just fascinating. It's just, I, I think it's amazing and really unique, some of the work you're doing, especially when it comes to the classroom. Yeah, um, it's it's kind of interesting. A lot of how I started was um, kind of this intrigue and interest uh, about fungi. And it's really fascinating when you meet people and talk about them and you kind of talk more in depth about like, you know, just more about like, like mold that may be growing on certain things or mushrooms on their favorite dishes culinarily. But when people start to make the connections that these organisms play a huge role in our natural ecology and world and the dynamic systems that allow life to exist, they're like, wait, why do I know so little? And they realize that there's this vacuum of knowledge that for a lot of, you know, for a lot of people and especially English speaking uh, cultures and countries um, that is just not even touched upon. Um, I guess kind of like a, a big part of it is interesting that kind of intellectual curiosity started um, when I was in college and we had, um, we had an intro biology lab and they gave us this course packet okay. in lab, which was in primer of like uh, going over basic functions of life details, but also they highlighted the, uh, the different uh, domains of life and the, and the substituent groupings and the different kingdoms. Each grouping had a page, page and a half, um, you know, bacteria, archaea, animalia, plant, but fungi had a paragraph. Like really simple, like and it, it, and that was something that really stuck with me when I first started getting into it. Um, especially since um, in college I started off as a as a pre medical student um, studying chemistry, physics, biology, a bit of organic chemistry. So I had a, a bit of a background in that and focused right. on history and political science. But part of my education was environmental policy, uh, understanding about like what uh, means are taken to not only preserve the environment but in the event of uh, an ecological catastrophe, who, who is responsible and what is responsible to implement the, the remediation or recovery of that environment. And so it was interesting after I graduated college, um, 
worked a couple different jobs, kind of business development, things here and there. Um, I was uh, tutoring Chinese for a bit. So I lived in college. I had the opportunity to live over in China. You um, speak Chinese. I, yeah, I've been speaking Chinese for about 10 years. Oh, my God. Well, what don't you do? Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I just don't flex <laughs> in the gram that often. So I'm just like working on a bunch of stuff. <laughs> just, just joking. Right. But no, no. But it's a lot of it is, uh, I guess, getting a little overwhelmed but there's so many things to post and talk about but like just picking sure. one or two uh but yeah so it was interesting um i kind of got into that focus and when i um so i had an opportunity to kind of do some work and kind of focus on what i wanted to do a couple of years after college and um i was really interested in like reading about bioremediation about how people were using biology using the natural right. metabolic capacity of organisms to uh break down uh environmental contaminants like volatile organic compounds uh, to immobilize heavy metals, uh, basically lock them away in these large organic structures, uh, and even for microbial populations, put them back into balance. Um, so I was reading about, um, you know, I was reading about uh, uh, phytoremediation using plants, phycoremediation using microbes, uh, but then microremediation and heard about kind of that interesting field, like, whoa, like mushrooms have the ability to break down um, these organic molecules from petroleum hydrocarbons or pesticides and it was mind-blowing because it's like wait this is crazy and i thought back to you know that, that intro biology lab handbook how little we knew about fungi and details and it was kind of right. this whole thing like why well, don't know that much so um really what got me interested that was back in 2016 um i joined uh the new york mycological society which i really uh have to give a big big lot of credit to is kind of one of this amazing organization uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with New York Mycological Society they are um, an incredible resource for anyone that's curious about learning more about fungi that happens to live in, uh, in New York City they go back to the 19th century actually uh, and they had this reincarnation by John Cage the minimalist composer uh, and they're an amazing group of people uh, Gary Linkoff was one of the more prominent people that was part of their group um, kind of leading the charge into kind of doing walks every single weekend of the year on the west coast y'all have it really great uh <laughs> on the northeast like so even pe even going on the middle of dental winter you're finding lots of bumps on logs lots of asco asco mycota at different details but it's an amazing resource so that's kind of what got me into it um i then on their mailing list they had a workshop run by two ecological program managers um for yeah. van Cortland park so van Cortland park is one of the larger uh, parks in New York City. It's it's over a thousand acres. It's pretty big. They're actually deer and coyote. It's actually somewhat of a resilient ecosystem that's still up there. And this is in New York City. Yeah, it's in the Bronx. Yeah, Van Cortland okay. Park. Um, so these two ecological program managers were talking about the applications of micromediation, about cultivating fungi, and that's when I learned about um, you know that's when I learned about uh, mycelium running, radical mycology. Um, growing, uh, growing gourmet medicine mushrooms, outdoor organic mushroom cultivation. So Trad Cotter, Peter McCoy, Paul Samets. And that was the hook because like, there's all this information that I like this, this vacuum of things I was reading about, like through whatever Google searches online that was right. condensed. Um, so that, you know, that during 2017 is when I really dove into it. Uh, like so radical mycology was the introduction. It's like a 700 page book, um, read it from front to cover. Uh, and kind of, yeah, that's which, impressive because radical mycology is an absolute tome and I love it for just referencing. And every time I go in there, I feel like I'm pulling out a new nugget. So reading it from cover to cover, that's, that's definitely a task. It took me a, a pretty much about eight months. So it was little bits in there, but <laughs> like, sounds it, about was, right. it was pretty, it was consistent aspect. 
It'd be crazy one sitting. That'd be insane, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think when you're talking about your journey, I think you picked up two key elements that are really important, two key themes. And that is fungi is kind of this unexplored frontier. I think that's why it does light a spark in so many people's imaginations. Exactly. It's one of those things where we kind of have a hint of the power uh, uh, that's in this kingdom, but we're only just at the edges of it. So there's still this huge unexplored yeah. territory that makes it possible for people who don't necessarily aren't in an academic lab setting exactly. or it makes it possible for the citizen scientist which i it sounds like that's kind of where you came into it was more yeah, from citizen yeah. science uh, it makes the citizen scientist possible to have an impact or have a role or make a discovery which i, I think a lot of people get disillusioned or or at least i did when i was younger thinking well everyone's kind of already done everything there's no super unexplored territory without committing to some incredibly long like graduate program anyway super reduced curriculum right yeah right right coming in with a microscope on one section in that when you achieve this field you can only talk to a small handful of people without using incredibly exactly rhetoric right yeah exactly and then i think another thing is uh micromediation I mean, bioremediation and then more specifically micromediation yeah. that's one thing that i think really captures people's imagination because we all know about the environmental issues facing the planet but we all know that a lot of the supposed solutions like just take the gulf oil spill for example a lot of the supposed oh, yeah. remediation solutions don't actually fix Deck it so Dectan, which is a dispersant, and they spray it on, and it it disperses the oil. But it's it's Dectan is worse for the environment than crude. <laughs> no, right. And it's just like, and then also you find that it's a petrochemical product, and it's just like, why, like, what? And the, the thing is, in general, is like, okay, so who is being given taxpayer public funds to do this? And also, too, what is the what is the public comment? What about these people that are in these areas where these solutions, quote unquote, are being used to quote unquote? Were they, were they okay with it? Yeah, and, uh, and, 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 and not to paint a big picture, but that's right. one. I think that's one example that is just spectacularly just uh, terrible. Uh, that you know, and that, mind you, but also too, there are people that are doing good aspects and efforts. But it's exciting the factor that we can rely. Well, it's it's this whole thing that we view everything as solid state, right? That it's right. viewed as this very it's a chemical reaction that happens inside of a flask. When in reality, like you have trillions of microorganisms like for example like i think one example we can talk about um with aquatic with, with aquatic contamination with microplastics um one interesting Absolutely. thing I, I i have paper i have to dig up and i'm happy to share it is they're finding that uh aquatic fungi which we know nothing about older you know we know we know life started in the sea moved on the land that aquatic fungi are making biofilms on these little microplastic pieces and it's kind of amazing what kind of chemistry is going on there. Are they extracting carbon out as a basically as an energy source? It's it, it's it's but it's it's something that we're trust organisms, so we're only we're only familiar with what dicaria, like ascomycetes and pseudomycetes for the most part, right? Right. So it's that like it's so the field is so nascent and wide open. It kind of gets people excited, right? It gets you on this aspect that anyone really can contribute because the more because the more you experiment, the more you try, and the more you explore, the more often you're rewarded because it is such a field that's in its infancy. That's, that's the biggest thing. And that's where quanta plays a role, like just having more people who aren't necessarily qualitatively the best scientists in the universe, but having more of them to do more experiments and explore more properties, more potential, just having the, the mass of people actually doing these things and looking into these different avenues is going to yield more and more results. So that's what's so exciting about a nascent area of science. And then when you were talking about 
you know, these aquatic fungi that I hope can save us from the plastics that are absolutely consuming the ocean right now. I think a big thing that micromediation does for people uh, and does for me is give hope. You know, I think it's one of those areas where it's like, wow, there is an environmental solution that isn't, you know, a dispersant that's worse than what it's cl clearing up, but it's actually a solution that yields a byproduct that isn't harmful. Exactly. And I think that just sets people's minds alight. But in examining a lot of those solutions, you know, I, I joined a group out here called Bay Area Applied Mycology. And yeah, that's, bam. bam, that's their big focus is micromediation, bioremediation. I love it. And we went on workshops. We went inoculated dead tree stumps. We did some experiments on Petri with oil and even with uh, glyphosate. We were starting to do some really interesting experiments like that. The one thing I kept noticing, though, was, wow, the amount of mycelial mass that you need to really prove effective in eating up, you know, any great quantity of these contaminants is huge. So anyway, I, I think it it's like a really exciting frontier, but I don't think it's been brought to that hyper practical level yet. And that's so, what really excites me about so your work. This is a good transition point because it's funny, like when you fall into this, you're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And it's funny because you fall into the reductionist trap that you know, like I make, I make a joke that we humans were often too smart for our own good. And a lot of our, our thought process is that hyper reducing everything, analyzing it down to a detail, but forgetting a part that it's all part of a system that right. it's, it's not like we're learning more about the microbiome that you have, you know, you have like, I think we're, like as a human being, you're 35 trillion with a capital T cells, like, and for scale, like a million seconds is just over two weeks a uh, million seconds is 31 years a trillion a trillion seconds is 31,000 years such an infinitesimal an infinitely large <laughs> number and that right. you have just as many microorganisms living in and on you that well you look like a human because your cells are bigger but you have a you have a hundred times more different microorganisms living on and in you and a thousand times more genes and that basically, much like your 35 trillion cells, each cell in your body is expressing a different part of genetic information. It's like expressing your silencing, right? Like your, your, your rod, your photoreceptor cell in the back, your eye and your retina, that's important for detecting light and playing into basically that whole process of how you perceive light and relaying it to your brain. And let's say your stomach, right? Your, your, your cell and your stomach that secretes acids and enzymes um, to digest your food. You wouldn't right. want your rod cell in your eye to start acting like a stomach cell, right? So it's interesting. No, that would not be a yeah. good day. So, so that's the orchestration of that. We're, we're in itself this giant colony of cells that have these discrete, that have a, have a genome and each one of them contain, but expressing and silencing. But at the same time, all these different cell types are interacting with different types of microorganisms that live in these certain areas and then coalescing with these genes. So we're finding that the microbiome, it's, 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 one, it's one plus one equals one that you have this macro symbiosis going on perpetually that, and so, so going on to the, the, to bring it back to micromediation. So I was, I pretty much got radical mycology, read through it, uh, bought a pressure cooker auto uh, and was making agar in my apartment doing this different stuff. Uh, I took a workshop um, with uh, Peter McCoy. Uh, he offered in New York city. I think it was back in 2017 took a workshop in the winter uh, with Daniel Rays of Myco Alliance. So that was kind of my yeah. inroad to kind of the community online. And I was doing this stuff in my apartment and my roommates were like throwing out my agar petri dishes. They're like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> what is this? Mold. Like, I'm like, well, it's not mold, but it is. And it's just like, so I was looking for it's special so mold. It's mold. We need it's, it's mold. We need, you know, and it's everywhere anyway. Um, so I eventually kind of found out 
so in New York, there's a really interesting aspect where there's community uh, biology spaces. So uh, there are two entities in New York, uh, GenSpace and Biotech Without Borders, that are community biology labs. They have a bit of history. I won't go into that. But um, so I was interested in basically trying this stuff out and dedicate lab space where they supplied agar. They had a proper autoclave. They had dedicated space where I could work. And right. it was interesting because I you have to apply for membership to get in to make sure that what you're doing is safe and follows procedures. Sure. Um, and so it was interesting. I applied, and then after I applied and got accepted, um, they said, "Hey, Craig, um, you know, would you like to open up this project community? We think it's a really cool thing overall." I'm like, "Yeah, it'd be awesome." And I was thinking, "Okay, cool. Like maybe like five people hop on, three people will fall off. It'll be just me and two other people kind of working on this project." People started showing up, so like showing up to these sessions that I was doing in, in the tens and twenties, and all of a sudden I was thrown in this environment of like teaching. And I was like, ah, so it was this whole thing where I was like going back to what I had read and between uh, textbooks and between papers and experimenting things and just kind of started teaching off the bat. So it emerged in this whole process. Nothing helps you learn faster than having to teach someone else. It's true. It, it helps you dive deeper. It's like, how, how much do I fully understand this, right? It's one thing if you read a book and regurgitate it. And I think a lot of our academic system, like if you're doing testing, it's right. not really so much how, you, how much you retain the information. Just how much how much you can cram it to regurgitate and then and demonstrate that aspect. It's far less like actual experiential or tactile kinesthetic. So I was sort of in this unique scenario. We were trying to grow. Um, we were trying to basically take uh, cigarette butts and understanding that you know the cigarette butt cellulose acetate. It's cellulose that's acetylated, much like the cellulose you and I are wearing right now, or the cellulose that is inside of basically uh, vegetative uh, vegetative plant matter. Right. Uh, and basically understanding that a lot of these cigarette butts, this, the, the tar, the, the air, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are very similar to the structure of lignin that's actually in, in woody plants. Wood. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's wood. And the fact is these phenol propanes, phenol, which is like this imaginal ring of carbon, kind of, kind of translate the scary organic chemistry a bit more visual. I'm um, there. I, I can do the uh, ring yeah. of carbon. I'm there. Yeah. So ring of carbon, phenol, and then propane, imagine like, a, a multiple linkage chain of carbon. So, so that structure, that phenylpropane, which are all linked together in different configuration types, make the lignin, are very similar to those cyclic, uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are basically those mutagens that can really bind to a lot of our biochemistry because they have lots of free available binding sites to work that. So it was cool. It was a cool way to kind of do that simulation. And that's kind of when I realized the more I went on and studied it, it's like, this is, this is really reduced. And that's when I kind of started getting more into soil. Okay. And I started realizing this whole remediation process that, you know, fungi, like decomposer fungi, like a lot of the ones we look into remediation, like shiitake or oyster, those are primary right. decomposers, right? Their right. job is that they are, have the powerful acids and enzymes to break down the complex structures of lignin, cellulose, hemicellulose, and set the stage for the secondary decomposers, right? Maybe right. the compost loving species, or let's say, think about, think about king oysters or, um, or, uh, or maitake, how they pop up usually on older stumps, right? Sure. And then, and setting the stage for the further down, the ones, the compost loving species, and then getting down to the tertiary decomposers, which are some of the soil fungi, some of the actual, um, some of the, some of the fungi that don't really present themselves as they a don't macro. have fruiting bodies. Yeah. They yeah. don't present themselves in macro structure. So the whole thing about it is that when I was making this approach, like, Oh, this one mushroom, do this and coax it. It's so much work. But in reality, things don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in sure. this whole, 
like nature abhors a vacuum, despises a monoculture, and understanding that it's all these are working together. So as, as I went on, I started realizing that and reading a bit more into, I, I think one good example was learning about um, uh, Elaine Ingham, um, the kind of the work that she did in um, the Soil Food Web, kind of establishing the factor that- And that, Elaine, was, that was Elaine Ingham? Elaine Ingham. So she okay. is, um, she wrote the, uh, the principal paper back in 1985 with this her whole team of, of basically uh, biologists that focused on microbiology in the soil. All these okay. different, some people focused on fungi, some people from bacteria, nematodes, microarthropods, and realized that and precedent the way nutrients cycle um, is through this network of organisms in the soil, the soil food web. So she's precedent for that. And realizing that, you know, we understand that in healthy soil, that it's basically the fact that fungi are able to take organic matter and inorganic matter principally, we know, but between solubilizing minerals and right. set the stage and digest it for all these tiers of organisms to break down and allowing basically working with plants overall. And the reality, we're learning more about how healthy soil, like in a healthy soil, has all the microorganisms to cycle through any kind of volatile organic compound, immobilizing or locking away the heavy metals that are rather reactive into larger chain structures of, uh, of omic, fumic, or humic uh, acids that are literally where you store nutrients and minerals in, in basically in the soil as a bank. And then also many of the pathogenic microbial populations we have in our environment are due to the fact of human activity. Really the Understood. fact, yeah. And so understanding that we're realizing that we're living way more in these artificial environments right. that are very far away from the environments of our ancestors. You know, like thinking the progression about human beings, you know, went from a process of being very intimately tied with natural ecologies in a hunter gatherer capacity eventually learned how to domesticate plants and animals still interacting with the soil regularly to the point as we pitch towards industrialization, we're changing the environments that for so long we've been in tune with microbial, right? Right. We're, right. We're even kind of getting inklings now that, that, you know, if you live more in a, in a, in a, in an urban environment, the microbial population that's predominant is bacteroides. It's really okay. interesting. It's one it's, it happens if you don't interact with the soil more. So we're actually realizing that our gut health is intimately tied to the soil health. And you can that was going to be my question is yeah. what, what effects are we seeing on humans by not being tied to the soil web? And just really quick to go back on all that. It seems like when you're looking at bioremediation, I mean, microremediation, the bioremediation, it's this system that really makes it the most effective. Exactly. It's interlocking all the different organisms, fungi, microorganisms, bacteria. There's more than just a mushroom that's going to break down whatever pollutant into nothing. It's going to bring it down to the next level of decomposer and the next level. And actually... That's something I was struck by. Uh, you're probably familiar with Alex Dorr, his book on microremediation. Uh, he did that cigarette butt experiment where he used uh, an oyster mycelium, which is close to my heart because that was one of the first things I did with BAM was take oyster mycelium and break down cigarette butts. Uh, in his book, he breaks down how that's kind of stage one. And then he actually exposed that mycelial mass to further and further decomposers to the point where it actually broke down. So that's what I'm taking away as like a primary theme is it's really the interconnection of all these organisms that's going to be most effective at any kind of bioremediation. We can't hyper, uh, I, I'm hyper focus, I think is what you said, hyper focus on just the mushroom. It's actually yeah, this beautiful interplay. Piece. Yeah. It's, and a lot of it too is kind of, it's a, it's, it's just a, it's just a precedent of how we look at things. We classify them, we want to simplify them, reduce them. 
Um, and it's we're at, and we're at this point in, and don't get me wrong, like that's gained that's gotten a, a tremendous amount of information as a as a species. Right. We're at the point though, however, that we can for the first time look across fields and see these connections. Right for so much of, for so long, it's been top down, but realizing we're taking this bottom approach and see where everything kind of interconnects and is intersectional, and that you're realizing, wow, this these are systems upon systems that play incredibly well together. So. And I think that's and that's that's no that's no coincidence. The rise of the internet, the fact that normally when you have people researching the fields, their conferences and select aspects, journals used to be physical things you had to access and look up that were pretty sure. expensive and pricey. And even too with the with the asset, access to the internet and even the open kind of uh, the open publishing effort of people to basically pop and, uh, publish open access journals allows anyone to have access to the uh, information which classically has been you know very expensive well you could tie that to yeah the interconnection of these different disciplines and maybe we've gotten to the point where that hyper reductionism has given us enough information on the relevant parts where now we can say okay we have a pretty good idea of how all these individually function now we can start seeing how the systems come together so So this is what serve us this is what gets me excited about citizen science and even to um one person i i do talk with pretty regularly his name is damon ty uh he works for biorad he's worked for uh, California Academy of Sciences. He does a lot of prolific um, mushroom foraging, but also bio blitzes. He's based out of uh, uh, based out of Oakland as well. Yeah. Uh, but he, one thing he talked about was community science. That um, really through kind of building out this network of structure. That knowing that th- that you know no one is an island, right? This is kind of the sure. myth myth of uh, basically of like oh like someone being an individual. But reality, we're collective species. You know, it's oftentimes we perpetuate this like this mega individual that does everything and no can do everything as well. But in reality, look at how our species comes down to it. Like, like a baby horse, right? Like a foal, like a baby horse can walk, you know, you can count the minutes that it can walk after being born. Yeah. Versus a human. We're more or less helpless for the first couple of <laughs> years of our life. So it's yeah, kind of good point. It's the base nature that we're actually smarter as a collective entity. We have all these insights and we come together. So community science is something that I think with, having all these independent fields and perspectives and even too like looking at Elaine Ingham's work when Hertz team came together to build the food soil web, you had, you had a nematologist, you have, uh, you have people that specialize in microbiology, bacteria, fungi, uh, plant science, um, and understand that it's an interconnected system. So what gets me excited for the future now is kind of looking at a lot of permaculture concepts uh, and even natural farming concepts and using these techniques to make, the best compost you can by prospecting natural soil microbes. That's what gets me really excited about natural farming is that prospecting. I like that prospecting. Like, like you're looking for the real gold, the soil microbes. I, I guess that, I guess that word may have a bit of a problematic connotation, but uh, like you're going, no, you're I going like for, it. Like, that's the uh, real value. Oh yeah. That's part of the material things that were, were limited were viewed as so essential and vital and valuable, but really kind of not paying attention to the natural ecologies, the natural biodiversities. And we're kind of reaching that point in our civilization where, where we've had an extractive system of development and right. we've kind of gotten to the point where, yeah, we've generated a yield, which has been financial, but at what cost? At the depletion of our soil health, the fact that we have less than five, less than 5% topsoil left, and that we're actually realizing a lot of our food is actually nutrient deficient. That the right. quality of our soils, especially as we kind of go in this thing about what is really organic versus conventional, it's not really about what nutrients you're using. It's, it's if you actually compost, because you're car- cultivating these microorganisms that can literally trade 
the micro, macro, and trace nutrients and trace elements out of the sand, silt, and clay of soil for the sugars that plants produce from photosynthesis. Well, and you're going to have to think we're going to have to get more and more hyper-efficient at preserving those microorganisms, that soil biology, because we're in a closed system. I mean, we're on a rock floating in the middle of space. Uh, you know, so we're not getting necessarily more of those microorganisms coming in. So we need to be hyper-efficient about, you know, reintegrating those into the natural system, into our current food system. And it's such an interesting point you brought up too, how so much of our current human wealth is so divorced from the real natural bounty that we all rely on and how kind of our system really needs to change. I mean, like the whole way we structure society, the whole way we think about things really needs to change to come more into balance with the natural ecological system if you know because let's face it we're not going to the moon we're not going to mars so if we're going to fix this we're going to need to center our system around the ecological system exactly and that's and that's one thing i think about is um a lot about you know and even it's even kind of on a more subconscious level with like you know people are focusing more on like local food and growing your own food and investing in soil and understanding question asking questions about where our food comes from and what quality of these details right but even too, the factor is it's kind of this, I think it's, it's this far cry, this re-engagement with nature, right? A lot of how our society has been kind of, as we've accelerated in our society, it's all about, oh, more, the promise of more stuff, more material interest. More convenience, more, more stuff. Yeah. yeah, more stuff. Whereas, you know, once you attain these things, it's empty, right? Like you, it's all about the strive, but whereas more people are reconnecting with nature and realizing there is so much deep interaction and function on a both a conscious and a subconscious level. And even too, we're learning about on a, on a, on a aspect of biochemistry, you know, of, of molecular biology and microbiology that these inner environments interactions are interacting with the, the unfathomably large number of microbes that live in on us and helping to increase populations and produce compounds that help improve our mood. So it's, it's, we're just, it's startling how much this information is becoming more and more exciting to understand that truly being interacted with nature makes us happier, healthier, and really alleviates a lot of the stress that oh, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world right now. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it, I think that's a, a big perspective of looking back to nature and wanting to engage in mycology, whether it's an aspect of, um, you know, just like, you know, botanical taxonomy, um, you know, understanding uh, different species for applied mycology uh, whether it's remediation, culinary, or just getting outdoors. That's the right. biggest thing. That's what it, that was a huge thing for me. You know, my, my little videos on Instagram are all about foraging. And for me, it was that reconnection, having a purpose to go out into nature. And then suddenly you suddenly find yourself in nature more and you start seeing the good effects from it. And I think there's a huge movement of people that are doing that, that are getting returning to nature, going back to nature. And I also want to, I also wonder if part of the big draw, a lot of folks have to citizen science right now is that kind of subconscious understanding that all of the, the culturally dependent skills you learn all don't really mean anything and aren't necessarily serving us as much. And we're trying to like find the root or the core of some system that is actually the most important and how we interface with that. And so, you know, I find a lot of people that are disillusioned like me. I used to work in digital marketing. Digital marketing is not like, that was not my passion. I was not feeling connected. I was not feeling satisfied. So when I found BAM Lab where they're doing these experiments on how to break down cigarette butts, it just 
lights this fire in your brain, you know that's far more relevant than what you were just doing. Now, maybe, you know, maybe that's subjective to different people, but for me, it was far more relevant than anything else I was doing. And so there's this drive to pursue like life sciences and real sciences. And those are the the culturally extant skills that are really going to be the most valuable moving forward. Uh, and so I, I think that rise of citizen science ties with that return to people returning to nature in this seeking of a, of a real tangible connection with the natural forces of the planet that for so long our society swung the other way and, and not cared enough about. Spectrum of people kind of in the biological sciences, you have on one side people that are really into um, kind of like biodynamic or more the ethereal like Rudolf Steiner um, aspects, like it's Wardorf education, which is, you know, you're interacting with biological systems, but they're, they're a bit kind of mystical in a capacity. And right. on the exact opposite of the spectrum, you have like synthetic biology, where literally we're, we're basically synthesizing new strands of genetic information uh, and transforming and inserting them into certain types of microorganisms that, are, that have been selected and expressing, uh, making them express these programs. And this is, this is like looking at the whole corpus of human ability to interact with biology. It's funny, like you think about like a plow or a pitchfork is just as an important piece of biotechnology as a pipette or like a DNA sequencer. That's the thing. We, we tend to skew it towards this like tech. No, like yeah. technology has it's been around for a while. We just, we've gotten better at like, like, like doing precision and detail, you know, but well, when it comes to mixing compost, you're not going to want that pipette. You're going to want that pitchfork. Exactly. I mean, the more exactly. useful tool when exactly. you're mixing compost so, around. So, so on that spectrum where you have on one end, um, the more ethereal biodynamic kind of the viewing of farming and agriculture. On the other end, maybe the synthetic biology, which is even more advanced, where it's the bleeding edge of it. Usually these people in both camps want nothing to do with one another. Because right. you know, there is a bit of that culture war that happens. Like like people like uh, people on the side of like biology or like molecular biology, like, oh, these crunchy hippies and whatever, man, like that. And then, and then you know, people on the other end, like with like biodynamic or like, Oh, like modifying everything, like like a doomsday device, Frankenstein stuff. But if you kind of pull in a little further towards the center, you have on the more kind of naturalist, you have permaculture, right? Which, which in itself is a really interesting discipline of looking across the world of all these cultures that have been self-perpetuating and, and understand these frameworks and ethics and design principles. And then you have molecular biology on the other end, which is basically we're applying the technology that was given to us by the 20th century was the century of physics, which allowed us to basically make computers, which led into the computer revolution, the information revolution. And then we look at biology and realize, holy moly, there's a lot going on here. This technological progression on, on the more bleeding edge of it has right. allowed us to look deeper into biology at a more effective and affordable level. So we're realizing that maybe these people who were much more in time with natural cycles and systems, they were observing scenarios, but they lacked a vocabulary and a um, procedure that was delicate or high resolution enough to articulate what was going on. Right. Which, you know, far more of like, I, I kind of go into young, like, like uh, anima and animus, like anima was more and more feeling and sensing and kind of, interconnected kind of viewed as more of the feminine part of like the individual and kind of intuition and sensing. And then much as our progression to language and logic and mathematic and recent capacity of human civilization is much more of the uh, animus, the much more logical calculating capacity. And we're realizing that we can kind of use these tools to pull back 
and look deeper. So a lot of what I kind of get into with the, um, the molecular biology uh, work that I've done with mycology and even what I'm hoping to do in the future with soil microbiology is using that as a new microscope, using that as something that we can look deeper and understand that, you know, we can, we can start to quantify these organisms and understand that it's not like trying to recreate like a photorealistic painting, but it's more like impressionism. It's more like, like Monet and looking at the water lilies, like make, understand that these profiles interconnect and interlace. And, it, and that's really how kind of the, the biological interface happens in a lot of these complex systems that they're so delicately interlaced and intertwined, um, you know, reducing them and separating them is the very reason why we can, we, we can, we can culture less than um, 2% of the microorganisms that are out there. Because we are necessary we're like pulling threads out of the tapestry like no no no. you need the whole tapestry together exactly, exactly. to have this thing function properly and you know we were talking before we kind of just did that little discourse of like people returning to nature people now getting into citizen science they realize how important all these principles are you know how we need to return to these things have a better relationship with ecology and just going back i think it's interesting when people get thrown into that dichotomy of hyper technology on one side and almost like luddite you know i follow the cycles of the moon on the other side it's like where do you find yourself in between that and we were talking about bam before which is the organization i got involved with and then there's another organization in the bay area called bams b-a-m-s bay area uh, mycological society you think the names are the same they're both into mycology they're both into bioremediation they must be on the same team no bams is very much more of kind of technologically focused they want to have that that feeling of that rigor of real science and they consider bam to be more like crunchy granola hippies and i'm always struck by like no we should actually be working more toward the center for how do we take folks at bams who have their skills in microscopy their skills in hard sciences to apply to the experiments, the the real tactile experiments that BAM is doing, where we're going out and inoculating logs, or you know, we're in petri, we're soaking up oil. Can you help us look under the microscope and see what's going on here, and give us that impressionist painting, or as close as we can get to what what's functioning here? So it's just funny that those two big mycological groups in the Bay Area are That's playing crazy. out that that dichotomy that you just talked about, and I I don't necessarily think it's a challenge for people when they kind of want to jump into the life sciences or kind of this new wave of people that want to get into mycology. But I, I, and I think most people do kind of tend toward the center, take the best of both worlds, but you are kind of thrown into that arena of, you know, one side or the other. And I, you know, personally, I'm very against GMOs and hybrid skins, church of skins. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. And then (laughs) I talked to someone about, you know, hybridization and breeding of mushrooms and, you know, to find sporeless varieties and how you expose sometimes the spores to different irradiate it with different wavelengths of light to get new. And, you know, part of me is like, oh, that sounds like GMO. I can't be for that. But then the other part of me is like, no, that's actually really interesting. Maybe it's not that bad. Have you heard about atomic gardening? Atomic gardening? No, I haven't. Oh my God. It's the craziest thing. Okay. What is atomic gardening? So atomic gardening was when we were first like observing what effects radioactivity or reactive reactive uh, particles had upon biology. And so th- what they would do is they would basically take a, this was basically the first half of the uh, 20th century, like with the beginning of the atomic age. And they would have this field where they would plant crops radially around. If you actually go on uh, Google and image search and search atomic gardening, and they would have this radially kind of uh, this field. And they, in the center, they have this, They'd have this this area where they would put in a radioactive isotope, 
And the idea is it was a concept of like kind of um, it was uh, it was pretty much uh, genetic engineering by literally bombarding the genomes of plants with uh, with reactive atomic particles from isotopes that were very volatile and they would knock genes out and observe what kind of mutations happen. This is before we could, um, you know, insert uh, genomes or kind of do things like agrobacter or do bacterial transformation uh, and right. progression. Uh, and so what's crazy is ruby red grapefruits actually came from that atomic gardening experiment. They were bred to that capacity because that deep pigment color as well. So it's interesting. A lot of it was us kind of like imagining trying to engineer things like just mashing them together with stones, which is literally what was happening. <laughs> what we were doing, like, yeah. <laughs> like putting isotopes, whereas now we do precision. But I, the thing I think about is that a lot of people, you know, whatever feelings they have toward uh, modification and whether it's the science or the food or health or politics, right, right. is that the technological progress is that to throw that all away and realize, wait, wait, there's a lot of stuff that we can apply back using these kind of permaculture principles, using these uh, first principles reasoning to have the best of both worlds. The idea is like, it's like, you know, like if, if a trail has been blazed, you know, maybe not the best way it was like excavated that really destroyed ecology. You, you wouldn't avoid the trail, hopefully to maybe do some like agroforest to restore it, you know, understand that, you know, progress in human capacity may not be the most elegant. Uh, and when understanding larger systems at whole, but nature's resilient in that it allows us to kind of appreciate, look deeper in nature. So that's kind of where the um, aspect, and I think it's a good transition to talking about um, my kind of what kind of work I've done with mycology in the classroom. Exactly. I want to go more to your work in mycology, but just really quickly, did you, all this knowledge you've been spitting out, I've kind of been in awe. I've been listening. Hopefully everyone else is getting a ton out of this as well. Was this just kind of your four years since you've really dove deep in mycology? Did you have an academic background or is this is this uh, kind of knowledge of citizen science where you kind of taught yourself? I think a lot of it was, um, you know, when I I've been a, been a younger, I've, uh, so I'm from New York City. When you live in New York City, you move around a lot. You know, it's like it's chasing housing situations. So right. a lot of times it was like New Year, New School, New Friends. So a lot of times, like I found reading and kind of you know books to be that concept where you can dive into something, uh, an article, a magazine. And I always spent a ton of time upstate um, in Harriman State Park, Bearman State Park, just north of the city where there's really good natural ecology. But I've, I've had a very kind of visual kind of concept, like, which is why, like, I can look at organic chemistry and Chinese characters and like, oh, I can kind of like take those apart in my head and understand what's going on. <laughs> so I, I don't know. It's like, I don't I'm, I'm, I'm not one to brag or whatever, but it's, I don't know, I guess like a, it's a visual kind of concept to memory. Sure. Process. Did you hear about the thing, how people, um, posted online that like oh like do you do you have an internal dialogue or do you visualize things in your head and a lot of Ooh. people were freaking out that wait you don't do that or do you do that and i posted yeah. like, on instagram that yeah no I, I think in images i don't have an internal dialogue voice people are like you don't like what and i was like oh, wait what that's like what like like so do you think that's do you think that's aided you then in your own explorations into the sciences do you think just having that more visual way yeah, of managing information I, I, I think it has because then also i can kind of have that retrospective of things i've read or learned in the past with new right. information but also taking things that are very complex like a technical paper or a view paper and i can i can make that a little more palatable to people in different levels right but also kind of maybe spark a little bit of intrigue like that's right. i think a lot of our current system education it's it's very route like learn this learn that and there's pros and cons to it but 
Um, I think a lot of people like when am I going to use this? But if you like, if you give someone a vantage point on the horizon, they'll build a bridge to get there. They're like, okay, what do I need to learn to do that? How can I do these things? What can I learn to, to get to that better level and, and understand things? Okay, I need to learn this bit of biochemistry or this bit of math just to get there. And the reality is that along that journey, you build those emphasis. So when I work with a lot of um, you know, middle school students or high school students um, before, I've tried to keep that into that capacity because I think back when I was in school, what things about school like kind of turned into almost like the peanuts were wah, wah, wah. So I always try to like, whenever I teach, I try to do a lot of visuals, um, lots of slides, lots of pictures, not too much verbose because I figure if I'm in if I'm a more advanced um, level, like of high school or college or adult, I can always send them the papers, the references they ask about, things I feature. Um, but a lot of it too is, you know, it kind of started with, um, I had some opportunities. I had a, I had a, I have an internship with NYC Parks uh, Sustainable Facilities Division. It's interesting. I've been at this place for like over, since like 2017 on and off. And, and I met people that were uh, doing it, um, running programming for nonprofits in middle schools throughout New York City. So they were, in, they were interested in the fact that I knew a bit about mushrooms and soil. And I kind of started teaching, like having opportunities to be guests of these not-for-profit, educational not-for-profits um, to like third, fourth, and fifth graders. So the whole thing there is you got, it's the attention economy, right? Like they're sharp. Like especially with with visual in nature and ecology, they're able to their visual recognition system is so much just is so turned on all the time. Whereas a lot of adults, like we kind of get that toned down a little bit, right? Because we right. get normalization of how society works and like the pre-built neurological pathways of routine repetition. So that was kind of a big part of how I approach teaching. So it's experiential. Uh, and tactile kinesthetic, always doing visual workshop, kind of being able to read the room and okay, like when people are falling off the attention bell curve and I kind of have to like stimulate that capacity. Um, so that was, so I kind of started working with uh, that aspect. And then I was doing work um, at, uh, at the lab. I was teaching a bit. And then uh, what really kind of set the stage was that I got a, I was teaching workshops at the uh, end of 2018, beginning of 2019. And um, I had a former attendee reach out to me saying, hi, my name, uh, my name is Calvin. I'm a, um, I'm a director of uh, youth programming for this uh, nonprofit called Beam Center. So Beam Center was uh, really unique because they're a maker space for teens that come from underserved communities. So the big part okay. they do is they build these, they build these, um, these maker lab spaces in a lot of high schools, but they have a central location where they have a wood shop, they have laser cutters, they have, they do uh, electronics with soldering. It's all about hands-on experiential. And the kind of stuff that kids are probably missing in public school. Totally. Yeah. You know, I'm a visual, like tactile kinesthetic, like, and a lot of the standardization, like you lose upon like oftentimes where like kids want to do or act and even to that carries on to adult aspects. But anyway, getting back right, to the, right. it was, um, was basically, it was amazing because they were designing their spring apprenticeship program and Calvin had picked up radical mycology and mycelium running in, seen a bunch of stuff on YouTube was like really kind of, I caught the mushroom bug and was like, listen, I would love to do mycology. So we developed a 16 week long uh, mycology apprenticeship called fractal mycology. And it was kind of amazing. It was really, that was like the, that was the first big medium, uh, medium turn like program where we built it out and planned it out. Um, students got a lot of hands-on experience, how to do like low tech, no tech cultivation with cardboard and how to recognize, especially in urban areas like New York city, how right. you can ca capture viable organic waste streams as substrate um, for 
for run mycelium on that can be used to either make, either cultivate mushrooms that could feed people based upon what you what you select, obviously like coffee grounds and cardboard, or otherwise less desirable or less viable things to make plant food or compost. That you can take that carbon that is always so readily thrown out and put in the landfill, off-gassing methane or incinerated and, and, and producing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, capturing it, allowing you to integrate it with the fungus to biodigest it, and then integrate it back into the soil to which it will be decom- accelerated decomposed. Well, and it's really interesting to hear about a knowledge of ecology and a knowledge of natural systems being applied to an urban setting. So we were talking yeah. before how everyone living in excessively urban settings has disconnected us from a lot of the natural ecology to deleterious effects sometimes. And now going back and taking some of that understanding and applying it to the urban environment can actually reap a lot of benefits. And we can start pulling like maybe keep the best of the urban environment where we have this close-knit community, you know, all the good things that come with living in a city, but then apply some of these ecological natural systems understandings and start to abate some of the negative effects, you know, like increased food security, maybe helping in dealing with pollution. And as we're talking about all these things of being divorced from natural systems in an urban environment, you're in New York City where that's like the, the, the ground zero of that kind of stark realization of like, oh my God, we're so disconnected from nature. If one place needs that understanding to be applied on a very practical level, it's New York City. So I think that's awesome that you're right in the heart of of where it can really do the most good. And you're teaching the people uh, for which it can do the most good, which is teach kids who are younger, who as they grow up are only going to begin their journey and further kind of what you're showing and further the whole multidisciplinary kind of citizen science umbrella probably yeah exactly um and that's kind of the big thing that like especially in like urban areas new york city like a lot of our green space is consolidated right we have these large parks but we also have smaller entities and areas but you know depending upon where you live in the city there they can be a varying grade to capacity um, right. one exciting thing especially kind of talking about the citizen science aspect i should mention the ecological conservation organizations so Van Cortlandt Park Alliance, where I got initially introduced actually to applied mycology, um, uh, the uh, Newtown Creek Alliance that actually is, um, Newtown Creek is the, is the estuary that separates Bronx and Queens, which was the site of the majority of uh, Standard Oil's uh, refineries, oil refineries through most oh, of the 20th century that BP inherited. Um, and that actually a super fund was done. Uh, the Gowanus, Low, uh, Gowanus, Gowanus Canal Conservancy, which is another estuary, and you have these like community conservation organizations that, you know, are basically have an asset where people come together and want to hold these bad actors accountable for this toxic legacy. And a lot right. of that too, like, so, like even with bioremediation about how do you think about a system, Newtown Creek Alliance, which is an amazing organization. Uh, if you live in New York city, definitely check them out. They did these things called living docks. Okay. They basically, you know, people wrote this, wrote the whole Creek off cause it was super toxic they have six to seven inches on the bottom of the creek called black mayonnaise, which is a mix Ugh. of these petrochemical sludge. And, you know, it, it's, it, and there's combined, there's combined sewer overflow. So when it happens, um, all when it, when it rains, basically the sewers overflow and put dump into the creek and you get this bloom of, of algae uh, that dies off consequently. But a lot of, a lot of this is due to the fact that the actual natural ecology around the creek has been replaced with concrete and steel. And right. one thing they're trying to do is making these floating pontoons where they, in, they introduce these, these, uh, these saltwater marsh grasses that love the brackish waters. And 
what's amazing is that you see the natural restoration of ecology. You have these organisms that are resilient that you start generating a successional ecology right there, which allows you to kind of jumpstart this natural process about how everything that we will build will be broken down and decomposed by these natural systems and cycles on a long enough time scale. Um, and that's so that just, was, that's an amazing application of these concepts and these principles where we don't need to, we don't need to overthink it. I mean, we just apply the natural system and there's that glimmer again, that that's the kind of thing that gives you hope that like, wow, we can actually turn back the damage that we've done exactly. if we just let nature do its thing or so, help it. So, so much of our interaction with the world as a species has been active, right? Right. Where reality, when a system is established on a large enough scale, it becomes a passive system. Like in a permaculture, a big part is how do you work with the natural patterns of nature to maximize uh, yields and stack functions so that you get the most bang out of your buck out of a passive system, right? Right. Like, you know, and that's kind of the one thing like we're smart enough to kind of orchestrate, you know, and, and it's funny, people like, Think together these like amazing like, kind of Rube Goldberg like permaculture systems that were like a water catchment, but it's a heater and it does this and it irrigates. And I think that's kind of beautiful because you can take that that mindset, that engineering mindset, that kind of that creativity and intelligence we have as a species, and direct it with the natural flows and cycles of nature. So it was crazy with Newtown Creek. There were people that were from the city that were responsible for ecological monitoring that wrote off the creek. Yeah, it's a lost cause, whatever. And when they saw wow. that natural biology was returning, that the natural succession of ecologies, that gets attention. That's what's kind of mind boggling. Um, so Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of thing, again, that, that makes you hopeful and gives credence to like bioremediation as a practical tool. Like, no, look, we work with the flows of nature and re basically reinstitute the passive system where we kind of blocked it off with concrete exactly. and watch the effect that it has now. It sounds like in working with a lot of those organizations that basically led you to a path. And I know we've kind of glazed over like NYC, NYC, but it led you to a path where you're in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say it led you to the path you're in this community. And then that yield this opportunity to be in a classroom. And I guess one of my greater themes with pretty much everyone I have on the show is, you know, once you get the passion, clearly you're extremely passionate. You have a brain that moves like a thousand miles an hour, which is super helpful too. Uh, but when you're passionate about something, you just like dive into it. Like you start exploring, you connected with these groups that are trying to reinstate natural ecology. You're like, oh, mushrooms. They only had a paragraph about that. This thing is blowing my mind. I can write a book, you know? And so you start really getting into that. And then suddenly you're making these connections. You're having more of an impact. And like, if you just aren't scared to follow that passion or that interest and really apply yourself, like the resources and the opportunities avail themselves to you. And that's why when I was reading about your educational, hearing you talking about your educational opportunities, you know, my first thing that comes to mind is, man, how can more people get into this? Because I'm sure that this is something that should be taught in every classroom. Like there should be this tactile, uh, not only kind of tactile learning that kids are going to get more engaged with, but about topics that are of the utmost importance right now that we're not talking about. Exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of the interesting bleed through with working with a number of uh, <clears throat> uh, not-for-profits that engage not only the tactile experience, like Beam Center, which had a whole theme around biology, was their first project around biology. So we taught them how to do and see, even we even, even built a flow cabinet uh, wow. with the students. So we they taught them the whole process of inoculation and details but also larger roles, but also with um, the opportunity I had to work with uh, MS-126 in Greenpoint, uh, this magnet school for environmental engineering. Um, amazing person, Faye Walker. She was a sustainability coach for that school. I met her actually at Peter McCoy's workshop. So we've had this very interesting wow. dialogue 
over the years since 2017, staying in contact, working together, kind of being these very strong um, educators that believe in experiential ecological education. And it was interesting because um, I, she just wanted to bring me and talk about fungi and mushrooms and the roles they play. And her program at the school, she was responsible for um, this program called Soil Cycle. So it was teaching kids all about soil, how to build soil compost. And we initially were going to work with um, uh, Richard Shaw, who's a uh, who's a, who's an established uh, soil scientist for the USDA and for the Urban Soils Institute for out of Brooklyn College. And initially, um, we were going to do the classical, like soil core, and kind of look at the different horizons and details. And it was interesting. Right. I asked him because at this point, I had learned a lot about Elaine Ingham and dived more into the uh, soil food web. And I asked him, like, "Are you guys going to talk about like soil biology, like the microbiology soil?" He says, um, "No, but I want to." So a lot of it is that the classical soil science is kind of evolving out of this extension of solid state chemistry where it's, it's no longer just about sand, silt, and clay. Like that, you know, ideally you want to have a loam, which is the perfect three-part solution of sand, silt, and clay. But if you have good soil microbiology and organic so- soil content, a sandy soil, a silty soil, a clay soil can emulate this loam by the fact of this microbiology. So it was amazing because we Basically, we have this uh, introduction to students about fungi, the roles they play, introduction to soil food web, basically uh, pretty much sixth and seventh graders. And also we did soil microscopy that we basically we took a bit of soil from uh, Manhattan Avenue Park, which is a park over in Greenpoint by the right by the Newtown Creek. And we took a scoop of soil and we did soil microscopy and um, it's all granular. There's maybe a, a speck or two of humic and fulvic substance. And if you actually watch it on video, it pulsates. Because wow. it's bacterially dominant. The only things living in that soil are <clears throat> really bacteria and like bacteria and a couple bacteria eating, uh, eating nematodes. And that soil, urban soil, is the reason why you see dandelions, at least in northeast, northeast mugwort, um, these, these, these species that thrive in these bacterially dominant soils because their microbial symbionts are bacterial. And that talking about as part of what we want to do for building soil is we want to increase structure by adding biology. We think about succession, right? We think about like, like the beach, the beach is like, you know, think about the beach and you move in, you've got these actual sand grasses, these that are saltwater tolerant, that sure. they're more bacterially. You move further in, you start to get perennials and bushes. And then eventually you move it to the woodlands and forest. The, uh, and then you actually go to the old growth forest. You see the succession of bacterially dominant to fungally dominant, like the old growth, like these super high acidity where, the nitrogen source is predominantly ammonium, NH4 plus, where in the bacterially dominant soils, it's it's nitrate, NO3 minus. And that reality, when we say fungally dominant, it's not that they're dominant, it's just like they're providing the structure. They're the infrastructure that helps all these different trillions upon trillions of organisms survive. So a lot of it too is we've often kind of reduced this down to solid state concept but it's anything but it's the biology capacity chicken or the egg which is first is it the soil with the right conditions yields the bounty of vegetative and different life other way around or is it a little more subtle than that it's well it's we the thing about it is think about like the first like you know we understand that like plant life moved onto land with fungi for the first the first organisms on land were these primitive lichens because the first quote-unquote soils were just they're sterile they're rock there wasn't enough granular structure and you had fungi having the role to basically take organic matter, break it down and cycle it. And then these primitive lichens providing structure for these, uh, uh, providing a, 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 bio, a bottom structure to help suspend these, um, these 
algae or cyanobacteria that are being held in place. And then eventually we understand land plants are kind of like a lichen turned inside out. We're learning that there are not just mycorrhizal fungi that make these associations with an absurdly large amount of plants. That it's easier to count the plants that do not, but you have endophytic fungi. And then we're, we're, even, lear- we're even learning that some of these endophytic fungi are crucial for like seed germination. Wow. So the plants rely in terms of their reproduction on the endophytic, because I've heard that some medicinal plants may attribute their medicinal qualities to the endophytic fungi living. Yeah, that it's the endophytic fungi are doing a lot of this. Fungi are great at chemistry, not only decomposing, but restructuring and that it's the endophytic fungi that are priming these complex chemical chains. And then it's the plants that are modifying them secondarily to make these different types of phytochemicals. And what's even crazier is that a lot of these endophytic fungi have lost the ability to sporulate. Wow. So they actually can't reproduce. So they're a deep, deep symbiont. They're living inside in this chained association. And we're learning that, uh, you know, there's even concepts that I've, I've kind of, kind of going Dan Kittridge and John Kemp were kind of more the kind of permaculture, regenerative agriculture that a lot of these plant cuttings or plants that are cut or cloned or um, that are not coming from seed, they're actually lacking these endophytes. It's wow. Like okay. being, being deprived of the natural microbiome. So it's crazy like how deep that we're realizing that, you know, it's it's one plus one equals one. That it's always symbiosis and that we're realizing that and it's it's kind of amazing and starting to think about these kind of connections and details. I mean, my mind is literally getting blown right now. And just to understand that, you know, we at least in a lot of people's journey starts out loving the fruiting body mushrooms, the mushrooms we all know and love, but fungi as a kingdom play a role in just every possible stage of life on this planet. And it's really fascinating when you apply some of these other scientific disciplines like you've been able to do to really have that understanding. And then, you know, then the doors open to even more applications of different fungi, you know, the the applications of fungi that could that, you know, if you apply fungi to certain soil areas, can it make it from barren soil into soil that can support plant life? So this is a big thing that I'm kind of focusing on right now is that um, using a lot of natural farming techniques where you're finding that the the microbiology that is the most diverse and well adapted to biotic conditions in your area right um growing them up and then inoculating the soils that have been damaged you can rebuild that natural soil structure because a lot of that when we talk about the successional capacity of like beach to like old growth forest that's without humans humans we've interacted with the with the the environment so much that the things we produce, the things we do have caused disruption over time. And that, you know, we're realizing that why people did crop rotations, why you had a part of your field that you didn't let, you just let sit was to let the natural microbiology come back and replenish because crops you grew, these plant croppings are based upon the fact about what nutrients they pull out of the soil when grown over time as well. And that potentially if you actually understand how to balance natural microbiology, there's no even need to rotate to getting into no-till or low-till and kind of understanding that you have set up such an amazing self-perpetuating system that gets better over time. So that's kind of the, the kind of the exciting stuff I want to work on in the future is how we could, you know, make, you know, the next generation of compost teas or in Korean natural farming, they called IMO, indigenous microorganisms, and combine them to really start rebuilding a soil health in a way that's not absurdly expensive. That's the kind of crazy thing about it. And that seems like 
as we're talking about this, that seems like one of the most practical forms of bioremediation or even microremediation is good compost and fixing the soil with the proper microorganisms. Like bioremediation doesn't have to be a mycelium fruit body sucking up oil. Like you were saying, it doesn't have to be the work of just the mushroom. It's, you know, this combination of factors and, and may even just start with making good soil as like stage one of bioremediation. Exactly. Fix the soil with the microorganisms and the fungi that it needs. Now, is some of these are some of these concepts, because I know when you said just to jump around even more, but no, just to go back to teaching the kids, um, are you teaching some of these greater systems concepts to the children as well? Because I know you, I call them children, obviously some of them are in high school, but I know you're teaching them how to do low tech cultivation, grow mushrooms, are then you kind of hinting at this greater interconnected exactly. system? Exactly. So when I when I did the soil cycle concept, the first thing we did was talk about what fungi are. So it's one of the simplest exercises is basically cardboard spawn, cloning or inoculating pasteurized cardboard with spawn. It's great, high carbon substrate, very little chance of contamination. Heck, the glue that binds the cardboard together is cornstarch base. Got a little oomph for the mycelium, and that way they can see and understand that things can grow. That like much like a plant, you know, you know, plants are subtle, but with fungi. They pronounce themselves in this in a, in a factor where we, for a while, considered them vegetative, but they're far more biologically active. So one concept too, we did the soil microscopy out of Manhattan Avenue Park, and then we did a garden installation where they have these garden beds. They had this amazing solar composter. They got an A plus rating of compost in Brooklyn Botanical Garden, and we're okay, cool. We're gonna make like these mushroom lasagna hugel beds, and this was a concept <laughs> of how we can. Talk about what goes into building soil, these roles these organisms play, how you have the decomposer fungi. Right. So, so we started in, um, I think it was April, we scraped off the top layer of the soil that kind of been frozen from the wintertime, and we layered compost, um, spent, uh, spent a mushroom cultivation block mycelium from Small Hole, that's a mushroom farm in New York City I work a lot with. They're very generous in donating their leftover spawn. So we lay those down, and then we did, uh, then we did cardboard. We did sawdust and then we did compost and just lasagna, 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 hit it on the top with mulch and we watered it and we let them sit. We let them sit for about April through April to May and the, the saprophytic fungi, the oyster grew through the cardboard, the mulch, the wood chips, uh, grew through it and also digesting it. And, but also too, with the microbiology and the compost that we there, started generating this natural succession of natural soil biology. So we have these huge oyster mushrooms that came out of these raised beds off the top of the mulch. And they were enormous and huge because there's such good air exchange and like that. And we used a, like, I think per bed we used around like 20 or 30 pounds of mycelium per spawn. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, so it's so we, loaded. We, like we loaded yeah. them up. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's there plenty to like, I think it was funny. Like I, like I, I remember like in a car, I, I picked up from small. It was like over 150 pounds of like spent spawn. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> anyway, so they, these huge mushrooms, oyster mushrooms fruit at the top, but rather than picking them, we let them sit. Yeah. Uh, we let them spoil perform their perform their function reproductively, and they started to basically deliquesce. The deliquescence attracted insects. Insects laid eggs. Those larvae hatched. That attracted birds, and you start jumpstarting the natural kind of succession of that natural ecology, kind of a lot like how. When Paul Stamen talks about the uh, Washington Highway Administration study with the with with the oil spill, but this is a you're simulating this concept and pointing to kids. Think about what happens in nature. That right. when you think about a tree growing in its life cycle, it gets old. It starts gets mushrooms fruiting off it. It falls down. It decomposes. You see the white rot, brown rot fungus. It breaks down to the soil and explaining this is how nutrients cycle through the microbiology. Yeah. So what's really cool is we were able to take 
a bit of that soil, a bit of that, a bit of that, uh, that soil we created from the combination of compost. And it had this beautiful, like 70% dark chocolate brown color, like really good smell. And then under the microscope, yeah. you see these huge chunks of humic, of humic acid, these big humic bodies. And so it was amazing because we were able to take that soil we built from the raised beds and transplant it to Manhattan Avenue Park from the damaged soil and do an inoculum capacity and kind of make that concept of how, how do we build and apply soil and apply compost in this fashion? You're augmenting damaged soil with, you know, rich, healthy soil that you were able to create yourselves. And we're, we're showing them each step of the process was using only upcycled materials. Right. That it is possible to reinvigorate some of these areas using, you know, tools that we have instantly exactly. at our disposal. And, and, and the students, the kids, they love being outside. They're like, oh, like, look, look at the beetle larvae and the compost bin and the worms and like, and different details and then seeing the mushrooms come up and they were all blown away by these different details. And it was amazing because that's the thing. That's the experiential hands-on education. And okay. So what's even crazier after that program, so Faye, they were they did a summer gardening program. Now Faye has been doing the summer gardening program for the past four years. They planted straight into those mushroom hugel beds. She said, told me that, and she told me, and she asked to dig up some photos. Um, but she's like, the plants grew incredibly fast. They had no aphids, wow. no thrips, no powdery mildew, because literally, no, well, not literally, but actually, you restored the natural microbiology nutrient cycling it's crazy because plants will actually they'll put down 50 percent of their sugars from photosynthesis their photosynthates to make these millions and billions of different combinations of sugar like you know you can't live off a diet of potato chips and soda alone you need some minerals and some nutrients right so what's crazy is literally the plants farm the fungi and bacteria in the soil by these specialized exudates that will attract the ones that can solubilize the certain amounts of micro macronutrients and trace minerals they need. So, you know, in the bodies of these bacteria and fungi, they'll hold these elements because they want to wait until they get the signal from the plant again. So yeah. you get nematodes, bacterial feeding nematodes, uh, fungal feeding nematodes, microarthropod shredders, and they'll eat this up. And what they'll poop out will be plant available chelated nutrients, organic nutrients. And this is basically through mostly, this is the landing him kind of creating this information. I was put onto this through Matt Powers, the permaculture student and other kind of concepts about this is how, um, you know, Elaine talked about how nutrients have been cycling for the past billions upon billions of years that life has been on land. And that really, this is the, then a lot of the green revolution has upset this natural kind of balance. So it was amazing to be able to teach that to, to the students through a hands-on a concept that wasn't just like me giving a presentation in the classroom. It's so much more effective to be able to take kids out in that environment, keep them intrigued, and it'll stick with them seeing those results, especially if any of those kids got to participate in the summer program, where they're able to see the plants grow. Like that's the finalization of the process. Like, look, I'm telling you, we made this rich soil. You're seeing the signs of life. Now look at the plants, how supercharged they are without any, you know, uh, without having to add any fertilizers. I mean, just the soil, the soil can provide enough nutrition through natural processes where you know, as we understand these things more and more and apply these procedures, we won't need the same fertilizers. We won't need, we'll be able to create uh, extremely potent soil. And, and I just get back to like that to me, now that I've spoken with you, that to me is like the heart of bioremediation. So it's like so healing the what, soil. This is what gets me excited because, you know, a lot of, and especially in the cities, there's a big like urban ag scene. And a lot of it is based yep. around uh, hydroponics and 
you know, I, I think aquaculture are good systems. We can use uh, aquaponics or aquaculture using organic uh, nutrients. But they talk about a lot of people I hear talk about talk about is oh you know by uh, by twenty uh, by twenty fifty seventy percent of the world's population will be living in cities so we need to scale vertical farming and hydroponics and you know the, the, a lot of the big thing is people don't talk about you know the elephant in the room that you rely upon extractive fertilizer nutrients that do right. have a carbon footprint and at the end of the day like you know conventional agriculture mono mono monocrop agriculture for all they care they could be growing the plants in pumice. Because the reality is they've bred these super weeds based upon over-applying or inorganic. Anyway, I'm getting away from it. But the reality is in general is that – so here's the physical limit, right? So phosphorus, one of the key essential macronutrients, NPK, right? P for phosphorus. Yeah. That predominantly comes from phosphate ore. It's, it's, a, it's an ore we mine out of the earth and through a process we make these fertilizer salts. Right. So. The total global supply of phosphate is 70 billion tons, 50 billion of that, 50 billion of those 70 billion tons located in northwestern Africa, predominantly Morocco. Wow. Okay. So everyone's extracting from there then. So this is basically where if we're going to continue to, well, just as supplies dwindle, it's going to become hyper-concentrated. So- we know that as resources with scarcity, I think it's be- better than running ourselves into this geopolitical crisis. Right. Uh, not only cultivating, uh, you know, hydroponics, but also conventional soil-grown monocrop agriculture, chemical agriculture. Why not make really good compost that, as we understand more microbiology, we can actually make plant-specific. We can then take from that compost and repair our soil. We can pull carbon out of the atmosphere because we're realizing now that in temperate regions that mycorrhizal fungi are responsible for sequestering more carbon than plant matter in their fungal bodies, that an acre of healthy soil will have two tons of mycelium. Wow. So they'll be able to pull down that carbon just from the, I mean, from the air. Yeah. Turning it into a sink because it's it's required in, in a combination of from the organic matter you're sequestering, but also too from natural respiration. And that right. capacity as well from like, well, they, you know, they breathe oxygen, breathe out carbon dioxide, but those small, the amount of fungi are tenacious to how they grow. Like we know that the, the, they, that the single two largest organisms that go tit for tat are the two patches of honey mushrooms and the cascades. And I think somewhere in the Midwest, like right. a huge mass amount of biomass that can grow prolifically. So anyway, the factor is we can sequester, pull carbon that we build pumps. We're not making better pumps. We're building, building more sinks. And we're improving our soil health, but also two, the potential to make compost teas and extracts. Yes. And those compost extracts can be turned into organic nutrients that are chelated. And then shifting to an aquaculture, where we're actually thinking about with aquaculture, we're trying to simulate a riparian ecology. We're trying to simulate an ecology where we have an margin effect between land and water. We know through permaculture that when you meet two different ecological habitats, the number of species double because okay. you have these areas of interaction. So the reality is we should be striving more towards a simulation of ecologies through, through aquaponics. And then even too, in standard aquaculture, using these organic nutrients produced through regenerative techniques of building good plant compost. And even I'm sure we can even, through further research, know what types of microorganism profiles 
using molecular biology, using right. the next generation forms of sequence. And when we can look at these whole impressions of palates and what organisms have these whole ranges of associated organisms to make these specific combinations for certain types of plants and crops we want to grow. So I think a lot of it is not like, like throwing, throwing away the technology and aspect. It's how do we look deeper into it and stack functions, you know, bring permaculture, bring this, this big spectrum biotechnology as the resolution about how to articulate them and calculate them has gotten better, fold them back onto one another. Absolutely. I mean, they're a tool, right? They're not inherently yeah. evil. It's a tool that was developed. And now if you decide how to use that for a more productive purpose or a more ecologically mindful purpose, then we'll actually see the power of it used to, to have a restorative function, maybe and, and then and instead and of and a, and a, yeah, exactly. And a lot of it is, it's not about like, it's all about intention, right? Intention. Absolutely. You want to do these things, but it's, it's intention at the limit of information you have available. That's the thing. So, yeah, so it's, it was amazing to do that with um, MS-126 students. Um, and so working with that and kind of a lot of the work I do is, you know, work with um, working more with looking more at community biology spaces, teaching, providing lectures and workshops for community conservation organizations. And what's really exciting, that's something um, that I really want to mention, we talked about a little bit before, is that um, I'm currently in conversations with a number of people at uh, New York City Department of Education um, who want to integrate mycology and soil microbiology curriculum uh, into their magnet schools. So the magnet schools are a bit more flexible how they're specific on, and they, and they see that, you know, the future is about green STEM jobs, right? right? Focusing on how a lot of STEM emphasis on engineering and technology, the future isn't about learning how to program, make an app. It's like learning how to understand that to save ourselves, we have to integrate more with biology and absolutely bring biology back into the fold. And so it's an exciting concept where a lot of what I'm talking about is with mycology and soil biology is this vacuum of realizing that these huge amount of microbiologies play these huge roles. And fungi are amazing because they're these microorganisms that present themselves in these macro structures. When you think about how, how small a hyphae is, absolutely so like millions, like microns in diameter. And there's just, and how many it must be to make up a fruiting body or a mycelial mass. It's, it's, it's so, it's so elegant and amazing about, you know, they're so simplistic, but right. so efficient uh, and understanding that this is kind of this, in, like even kind of talking about like, this is an infection thread. When we talk about, you know, a mycorrhizal fungi integrating with the plant in general about how it opens people's minds up to biology and this deeper ecology that, you know, it also can change the social ecology. Talk about, you know, it's not deep ecology where everything should be back to nature, which, you know, there are a lot of systems that we can't just throw away. We can't deal with overnight, but understand right. how can we look to change our relationship with nature and ecology? How can we change the social ecology overall? So I'm excited that on the horizon is integrating um, not only mycology, soil biology, but uh, permaculture and kind of larger, deep social ecology concepts into magnet schools and then being able to tailor, tailor those to work with professional development for educators, creating curriculum that's tailored to different aspects and concepts, and even doing kind of the social permaculture, which I kind of find myself in this amazing scenario of like, I've just met these people through capacity, have these opportunities, and I'm at this point where it's a little, it's a little wild to kind of realize that this is happening and excited and thrilling that I think we can, the best tools we can give, um, the next generations inheriting the earth that that we have a chance to kind of 
reverse and regenerate a lot of damage has been done by giving them this tool set rather than this apathy, um, this scarcity mindset, we shift over to an abundance mindset. Absolutely. That is key to the whole thing. And I think mushrooms for whatever reason seem to unlock that in people, especially when you hint at these potentials and, you know, it's interesting when you're talking about us kind of navigating our new relationship in pulling back some of the damage that we've done. All these systems we're talking about in nature aren't, uh, uh, they don't happen instantaneously. It's a process. It's a process of finding the new balance of the exactly. passive system. So it's going to be from folks like yourself, hopefully more people who start integrating this knowledge into schools where then kids can latch onto it. And I had a couple questions here about future plans, which you kind of just addressed. I was, ho- I was hoping that there was a plan to roll this kind of program out to more and more schools. It's the kind of thing that I wish I had learned. And I've come at citizen science. And it's funny because my dad's actually a biologist and I had no interest in science. It wasn't appealing to me. But then I've come at it through this angle of citizen science that's unlocking these practical and beneficial avenues that are much more relatable, much more kind of hands-on that, that really spark your interest. So I really hope this is something that can be integrated into more school curriculums. Uh, and then I also had a note here about, like you said, STEMs, uh, what it was science, technology, engineering, and math, right? Yep. So having, you know, the U.S. I think has come to a point where it's widely acknowledged that we're kind of falling off in terms of STEMs, in terms of like graduate uh, graduates from programs that are specifically focused on that, jobs focused on that. A lot of that is going elsewhere in the world. Well, it's, it's also to the brain drain that a lot of graduates are going into finance. They're going oh. into jobs where they can use these critical analysis skills, right. not to engineer a solution, um, but to – you know, it, to it, trade it, numbers it, and paper around. No, we it, need it, someone it, who's going like, to create new soil across so, the country. So, so that's why I think like a lot of it is we talk about how it's it's tactile and hands-on and that you create this, this you spark this interest that allows someone to, how do I get to there? Like yeah. how do, what, what knowledge do I need to learn for that? Where a lot of the traditional kind of, you know, route process of learning and drilling and doing these sales, which are good for like building very, intricate systems that, you know, don't get me wrong, like people in engineering, civil engineering, um, like aeros- like civil engineering, mechanical engineering, the amount of discipline and mental focus and calculation is important to make sure things are safe. Like, don't get me wrong. Absolutely. But I think a lot of it is for people that are more spatially, experientially working with nature. It's like, I, I was talking about this, like, you know, it's not so much trying to engineer biology, but use biology as a item that would would you place in an engineering mindset, right? And the same way that you would place concrete or mortar or steel, right, right. you understand that this is part of the whole, the body of the thing you're trying to do, not trying to get it to perform this function and do this thing, which, you know, people are progressing. And I think it's amazing for people doing that work to help us understand these systems better because they're so complex. I think it's more accessible if we work with the flow and kind of go with this natural pattern and see how we can maximize these passive systems for what's already there. That's kind of the exciting part I kind of do see. And it just it just gives me so much hope. I mean, I, I'm going to have to, after this, I'm going to have to go listen to the podcast and probably have a dictionary out and a science book and, and really catch up with <laughs> really catch up with where you're at. But even just grasping the basic concepts, I mean, it really gives you a lot of hope in dealing with the issues we're, we're looking at today, that there are, yeah. there is a, there is an exit, system that we still haven't fully fleshed out that we can still discover and apply to huge benefit. I mean, there's so much potential. And I think you probably inspire that in kids. Like I said, when I was a kid, there wasn't anything hugely inspirational. And and, and 
and just to go back, it helps to fight that like disaffected kind of giving up mindset. Like you were saying that defeatist mindset when you think that, oh, I inherited a world that's already broken. What do I do about right, it? Right, so right. when you're able to open your mind to like, no, there are these natural systems, these certain aspects of biology that we're just discovering that if you get into now are going to play a critical role in the future and actually paring back exactly. this damage. I think that's like so hugely significant. And, you know, I now from speaking with you, I now want to go back and become more familiarized with kind of some of these basic components of, of the life sciences and basic components of science to understand a little bit better of uh, uh, in terms of how I can apply those things to future projects and how I can apply those things. Because I think what you're doing so inspiring, I want to see more people do that. And I guess as I'm rambling on here, is there, do, do you, do, do you mind if I drop a couple books that I found? I, I was going to say, is there, is there a way you can help people with a roadmap to kind of where you got to, obviously not everyone has your same brain and everything else, but is there, are, are there tools like books and things that are a roadmap yeah, to get in there? Um, I'll, I'll kind of shout out a couple books and I'm sure we can throw some together. You can put in the, the podcast. Um, but Jeff Lowenfels, um, was a student of Lanningham. Um, Jeff wrote three books with another person. I forget, that's forget my name, but it's uh, it's teaming with microbes, uh, teaming with nutrients, and teaming with fungi. That's a great compilation of just introduction into the soil, food web, and details. And uh, teaming with microbes is super approachable. Uh, and even to teaming with nutrients gets a little heady, but gives you just enough information, which is great. Um, for diving into, um, for different, um, hard sciences, like organic chemistry is like really intimidating. Right. Um, so Oxford University Press, they have this series of books called um, um, Very Short Introductions. Um, it's They have some for, uh, for organic chemistry, for microbiology, genomics. Uh, they're pretty great. So very short introductions. I think those are great because I kind of imagine if you're back in like high school or college, the curriculum and you just got the relevant inf- tip- tidbits and information without going super into detail, right? Like right. when you want to solve a problem, you can always go back and find that as well. So super accessible as well. Um, you know, Eugenia Bone, Microbia and, uh, and Mycophilia are two great books about introductions into microbiology and mycology, um, definitely for sure as well. And uh, for the mycorrhizal world, which is um, something that's pretty crazy and mind boggling, um, and that um, still is largely not fully understood. Not fully understood. Um, one book, Mycorrhizal Planet by Michael Phillips, is okay. pretty good. And then, which, and then there's uh, another one, which is a, which is it's a, it's a collection of uh, research. It's called Mycorrhizal Symbiosis, um, and those are pretty good as well. And also to shout out to Landingham, who a lot of what I've done is kind of brought this together and bring in microbiology, um, adding biology for soil and hydroponic systems. Uh, Elaineingham and uh, Carol Ann Rollins. So um, definitely some good people and happy to uh, put them as well. Um, yeah, so part of what I'm trying to do is, um, you know, try to put together a list of resources for books, like a glossary of books that really helped me. I feel like, especially with citizen science and community science, you're talking about like how the two BAMs in the Bay Area, how like they're synonymous, how right. you have people that are maybe a little more like different part of the brain, but collect together as a collective you know we can approach this as a group like you know it's you know it's to go through like the thought that oh like you have to read all these books and do this thing like no like work together as a community and kind of share because like you said you learn deeper when you learn to teach others yeah absolutely
So that's absolutely. Kind of the big thing and general. I think we we all have our different skill sets. And like you said, we're we're not one individual who has to do it all. Like let's get rid of that theory. You know, one human, not that they're worth one human on their own isn't achieving the things that you achieve in a group. So understand that while you might not be into all those books, or maybe you are, there'll be other people that fill those gaps if you kind of have the wherewithal to go out and connect. And you know, that's something I'm connecting with you here. I don't have the knowledge and the background of the sciences. I know I'm really stoked about it and I'm interested. And then talking to someone like you gets me more inspired. It may push me down another direction. So even just, you know, not building up those walls to where you can interact with people who are interested in the same thing, hear their knowledge base, and then get pushed in a new direction. Even kind exactly. of that, that inspirational economy can be hugely valuable and to just make sure you're connecting with people about, about yeah, the, um, the, the science communication thing. And I think that, yeah. uh, it's exciting because I think a lot of people, um, mycology provides that little niche to get them back excited into something, help them Absolutely. fall back in love with biology. And once you have that vantage point, um, another great little plug, uh, YouTube series called professor Dave explains, um, incredible compilation of, um, topics from chemistry to biology, to physics that are really, they're a nice middle point between like, you know, Khan Academy, which are these open massive online open course yeah. trainers and edutainment where it actually gives you just the fair bits and keeps your attention, but you learn as you go, allowing you to process. And I think a lot of it is that science communication is an exciting thing where people who are excited about science, have a career in it, are excited to share and get right. people inspired because it's the whole concept that the one of the benefits about having this interconnected world we have just by people kind of talk about, oh, everyone's connected on their phones, but no one really talks about that. We have more access at our hands than the, the, like the Library of Alexandria, right? Like in yeah. the back of your pocket. And we I have all of collective human consciousness in our yeah, hand. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing is now is that at one point, access to information was power. Now right. it's the ability of attention. Yes. That's the thing. Cause there's so much information out there. Right. How do I know what things to focus on? And there's nothing wrong with like everyone, you know, there's no, there's no point in being a poindexter all the, all the time. Right. Everyone needs right. to kind of veg out <laughs> and focus and, or just go out in the woods and forage for mushrooms, you know, I'm which, there, which, which I'm I have there. to admit, I, I, as an East coast, of uh, uh, you know, a fungophile, I definitely, we do live quite vicariously through the Instagram feeds of our, of our, west coast oh uh, yeah i i was gonna ask that if you found your guys out out foraging a lot we are kind of blessed in the west coast i mean even more so i'm in northern california even more so in the pacific northwest right you know, like it's always like prime mushroom season up there uh yeah. but you know and that was my key into it and then it's been a, it's allowed me to connect with people all these different disciplines of working with mushrooms and it's been a huge inspiration to me that i'm hoping will lead to some other exciting projects so now with what you're doing do you see more people doing kind of this educational my is there because i imagine the teachers and school administrators would be seeing what you're doing and they're fascinated too because like me i never learned some of the stuff you're breaking down i've never heard of elaine ingham and it sounds like she should be like at the forefront of everyone's minds in our culture um so are, are other school academics and things getting excited about this do you see a push where more of this information get introduced and suddenly we have craigs all over the country teaching this to classrooms well i i think already um there is a plethora of people that do this naturalist education that do get excited. Um, and, you know, part of it too, is that it was kind of unique. Like I was in New York city. I was really had this opportunity. Like no one's really doing like mycology stuff here too often. The New York right. mycological, they're amazing, but um, most of it is focused on like going out, foraging, IDing, um, not so much access and applied mycology. And like, you know, so it was this unique opportunity where, 
no one was really doing it. And the couple of friends that I, I did worked with them in general. Mind you, even within New York City, it's not just about me. It's like I, I kind of had this moniker and found this opportunity to do it and kind of, you know, as much as I do kind of post on like line, I, a lot of it, I try to make it substantial and unique information. So whenever I, I don't post as periodically as other people do, but right. I try to make it something tangible and strong to inspire people. And there's um, there's so many people in New York City doing amazing work with soil and mushrooms and fungi and microbiology. Um, and yeah, so I think in the future, there are definitely so many people, especially with like social media through Instagram, which is very visual. Yeah. Um, one of my really good friends, Anna Henning, who uh, Breakfast of Champions, yeah. she does amazing work in these ED Mondays and she makes these things and incredible detailed posts. And I'm just like, damn. That's well, like like the amount of detail and time, like super focused on that aspect. So, I learned so much from her feed. You should you should get her on here and interview her. I we have it lined up. <laughs> awesome, yeah, for sure, yeah. But but to that point, I, I think definitely in the future, um, a lot of it is like curating resources that are accessible and getting people excited, right? Because that's that's it's the sparking that it's the sparking that little flame that drives that engine of curiosity and kind of t uh, and hunger and tenacity to kind of move towards something right it'll kind of ignite that passion i feel like a lot of people like we were talking about earlier like we kind of feel a little you know there like there's not too much to kind of stir that passion right and i think it's what right. they're saying about fungi is because it's so wide open right yeah it's so wide open in so many different disciplines absolutely and i think it's mycology is like initiating this new wave of people that are getting inspired about science it's kind of there's going to be, there's like the green revolution. There's going to be the micro revolution. We're just on the tip of that wave. So I always tell people, it's like, I'm very much a symptom of this new culture that's arising of people that realize the, the incredible potential of fungi. And then more and more disciplines are getting added into that, that are able to put like a scientific, other scientific lenses on it, like you're doing what kind of your multidisciplinary approach and are able to yield like hugely informative things that have practical application. And it's hard not to be awestruck by it. And that's why I feel blessed to have a little platform where I'm able to showcase people like yourself, other people who are doing incredible work. And then I live vicariously through you. I get excited about what you're doing. And I, you know, I might not have the skills or the knowledge base or my, you know, my situation might not enable me to do that right now, but talking to people and getting their message out is so hugely, I mean, it's kind of like a selfish podcast. Like I do it so I can learn and get inspired, but I really think that people, so many people are going to get inspired from hearing this. Well, that's, information. That's, that's the feedback loop. That's kind of, well, that's the amazing thing about the magic of the meme, right? There are two ways by which information is transmitted. One, one is biologically, right? Chemistry. And then the unique thing that, you know, we see especially with us is memes, right? The reason you and I are having this conversation in this same language, um, talking over a system that was built because everything was taught upon something else. And it's very subtle. It's this very baseline thing. And that's the thing is like, we're a social species. And that's yeah. where I try to get like perspective, like, like, you know, even when I did the micromediation project at Community Lab Space, I, I tried to say, this isn't my project, right? This is everyone's project because it's all about how we work together in community. Like right. citizen science isn't just an idiosyncratic concept. It's about, it's the citizens together. It's the public kind of bringing what they have of, of information and trying inspiration. It's something in the future, like developing a network of resources available for people that want to do this applied mycology, inter integrating on different levels, whether it's, um, you know, going in really the botanical, uh, the, the classical kind of taxonomy to learning more about micromediation, learn how to build soil, 
learning how these unique situations, even efforts like the North American Mycoflora Project, where, which has been amazing of seeing, you know, mushroom clubs and societies that have been around for decades, coordinating right. efforts with professional mycologists. So I think there's a lot of shift in generational capacity, especially with our generation, um, generation, uh, generation X, millennials and Z, where a lot of our experience is social and interactive and it's right. more about community than more so competition. That's one thing I always try to say is like, what's why I always like tell people reach out to me. It's a message I want to share with you. I may not get back right away. Cause like I do a lot of things, but I'll, I'll but I'll, but when I have time, I'll give you the, 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 a, a well thought out constructed bit of information or resource. That, and that's one thing about it is that sharing and helping get people excited in the ways I've gotten excited and kind of help them give them other ideas of where they can build their own vantage points on the horizon to work towards. Yeah. It's, it's really a beautiful message of social connection of using mushrooms for positive change in the world. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that people are inspired by your work and decide to jump in. And I, and I, I kept asking kind of how you got there. Cause I think it makes the point that, you know, Craig didn't come out of the womb with all of this amazing knowledge <laughs> and this amazing, but you developed it yourself. You know, you, you, you went out and had a goal in mind, had an interest in mind and went and pursued it, gathered the knowledge. So it's, it's something that's eminently attainable for people and, you know, I think there's, there's so much power in that to know that if you embark on a quest of citizen science, you can end up in a place where you're so much different than you were and have, you know, have so much more of the knowledge that, that you were probably seeking in the first place, even subconsciously, more of knowledge of how the world works, how you can make positive change. I, I think a quest in citizen science is a, is a big part of that. And, and just keying on what you were saying, where we have to do it together. Uh, Phil Ross, a guy out here in San Francisco, does MycoWorks. He's working a lot mm -hmm. with materials. He's like, we need to rename it from DIY Mycology to DIT Mycology. Do it together. Yeah, do it together. Just not do it yourself. Yeah, no, and it's and it's uh, it's really exciting. I think there's a lot of potential opportunity. Um, and a big part of what I shoot too is like doing the stuff. I, I think like recently in the week I did I did a I did a flashback Friday of all this yeah. stuff from over the year, and it's crazy. Like you know, there's times where like. I get really, everyone gets kind of like burnout or tired and do these sure. things. And, and the one thing I found is like to kind of just go through and you, you kind of find those little nuggets, those little bits of memories that where you were like so enthused and drive and that you realize it's a whole corpus of knowledge and perspective. Like it's a whole journey through this process and that you're constantly evolving and learning more and more. And each day, you know, it's a learning experience to kind of add and improve every single facet we're kind of learning to more to seek more about and discover more about overall as, you know, as a community. So, yeah. It's, it's an amazing journey and we're all on it together. Well, Craig, just really quick as we wrap up, sure. I, I might have to break this into two parts, who knows, but where can people find you? Where can people find more about NYC, MYC, which is the group out there that you're doing a lot of work with different mycological clubs. Uh, maybe we'll put that in the show notes, but where can people find you and the organization that, that you're part of? Yeah, so um, it's it's really it's really just me at the moment. It was a resource. Uh, I, I think okay. be, I think in the future it'd be great to like, um, you know, have a dedicated space. I mostly work out of community biology labs right now, but I okay have, like, a lot of it is me and a lot of like lab equipment in a storage unit in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get a Kickstarter together. Get this man a lab, please. A lab and a teaching space. <laughs> Maybe we'll see what happens. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm so I'm based out in New York City and uh, overall kind of area um definitely a lot of good nomies in the pacific northwest micro uprise love done workshops out there um you know there's a lot of amazing people all over yeah um, but mostly based on new york city um 
And you can find me um, on Instagram, uh, instagram.com forward slash um, MYC uh, uh, backwards. Anyway, but you can either go to put a URL, you can put into URL um, MYC.NYC or on Instagram, uh, you can put uh, NYC.NYC. So, and we can put that in the show notes, but definitely um, it's kind of funny that my my url my instagram handle are kind of it, that's confusing it's already confusing no, it's, it's really funny like lots of tell people like oh nancy yankee charlie mary yankee charlie but i don't know it's, it's, it's a hoot <laughs> but um but yeah we'll, we'll post a link but um yeah well, or, or, and feel free to email me if anyone wants listening you can email me at craig c-r-a-i-g at um m-y-c dot n-y-c terrific well thank you so much for craig for being on the show and I'm excited to have you on in the future. I have a feeling there's going to be like just more and more floods of information each time I have you on. And it's going to be awesome to keep tabs on what you're doing, keep tabs on your project. Uh, and hopefully you're inoculating the next generation. So psychology takes us into a better future. And, uh, and definitely for sure, like the kind of work you're doing is a narrative capacity and making entertaining. And even to the recording of this information resources, that's what's most exciting is that we're generating the we're generating the uh, appendixes and collections of information for tomorrow for the next generations. Absolutely. Getting, getting people inspired. Well, Craig, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Take care. Have a great night.